Hey, welcome to Talk Farm to Me. I'm your host, Dana, and I'm so excited that you're here with me for another episode. You know, if you're a farmer, it's really hard to be seen, and that's what you're doing. I know it's your ears that you're using, but by listening to farmer stories, you are seeing them, their work, their struggles, their silent accomplishments. Your job is so important. This podcast is an important part of the Four Farmers Movement, a nationwide effort to recognize and support farmers by sharing their stories, yes, but also by dispelling myths and replacing them with facts, and also by inviting you and others who care about farmers to nominate farmers for mini-grants. Just the experience of being nominated is so powerful. Last year, nearly 300 farmers were nominated for mini-grants and six received them from Alaska to Maine. This year, four farmers and its 65 founders and new champions will do it again. Today, we have the honor of meeting farmer Paul Grieve of Pasture Bird in Temecula, California. He's so impressive, and what he's pioneering is fascinating and impactful. Now, Paul is a farmer for sure, his first generation, but his heart and soul are tied to doing things differently, trying new ways, breaking the mold. I think that's what really makes him draw breath every morning. And the intersection of that gift with farming poultry has had a tremendous impact on the pasture-raised chicken industry. I want to let you in on a little secret. I get challenged all the time. Why are you doing this, Dana? You can't feed the number of people we need to feed without industrialized farming or raping the earth. You know that, right? And sometimes I have doubts. But then I meet farmers like Paul or Glenn Elzinga from the last episode, and I am steeled. One more thing. Usually on Talk Farm to Me, I chime in to help with some background or to define a term or to explain what the heck the farmer is talking about so passionately, if it's not completely clear. But Paul is more like a TED Talk, and I think you will hear less of me than usual. I'm sure you won't miss me too much. Let's get talking farm. I didn't have a conventional background for farming. I grew up downtown Seattle, city kid, sports, like pretty normal. Grew up eating a lot of McDonald's, and that's just what our, it was like the 80s and the 90s, so that's just what everybody did. And I didn't really ever even think about food or farming. I didn't have any family in it. I didn't have any interest in it. I just had just wasn't something that you think about when you grow up in the city. Like the grocery store shelves are stocked. And as a kid, I don't care about the difference of organic milk and regular milk. It's like, just give me enough milk. That's what I'm concerned about. I did a lot of sports through college. I was in college track and field and all that stuff. And then when I got out of college, I went into the military, uh, into the Marine Corps. You might find it interesting that 11% of farmers in the United States are veterans or active military personnel. And in 2007, shipped off to Virginia and did the officer training, did all that stuff. And I ended up training as a sniper commander. And so part of that training was hiding in the woods of Virginia for like 72 hours. And if you've ever been to the backwoods of Virginia in the summer, you know, ticks are just like one of a thousand different bugs that are going to crawl all over you if you're trying not to move for three days in the woods. So 
we always do tick checks and like, you know, it's kind of embarrassing, but you have to get totally butt naked and have your buddy look in your armpits and like every crack and crevice. And we were pulling 70, 80 ticks off of each other from being in the woods for that time. And you always run the risk of Lyme disease because it's carried by ticks. I'm just going to say that this is not fabulous advertising for the Marine Corps. <laughs> and so I contracted Lyme disease in 2007 during sniper training and had the bullseye rash, the whole thing. And I just shortly after that started getting a lot of weird, like brain fog, fatigue, couldn't breathe through my nose anymore, had all this weird back pain. And I was like a college athlete, you know, super active kid. So it was weird for me to have these symptoms that felt like I was 40. I was just feeling really bad. And so around that time, 07, 08 is when CrossFit started to get really popular within the Marine Corps. And with that paleo, this whole like eating like a caveman thing started to get really popular too. And I had these buddies saying, dude, you have all the signs of classic inflammation. Why don't you try this like paleo thing and see how you feel and I just never thought about the food that I eat affecting the way that I feel I'd never even considered that so I was just like ah no it's a dumb idea whatever but they kept encouraging me and then eventually I just gave paleo a try for two weeks and like all of a sudden I could breathe through my nose the back pain was gone my brain fog was all gone and I was like oh my gosh this is the first time I've ever connected the fact that what I put in my body does change the way that I feel. And so I went to Iraq and then I came home and a lot of my family had gone through this similar kind of paleo or just eating better food, scratch cooking, home cooking, whole foods, real foods. And we just all had this similar experience. Like my father-in-law lost a hundred pounds. My two brothers-in-law on my wife's side, they were both college athletes as well that had put on a few extra pounds or whatever, and they were feeling really good after eating paleo. And so it was summer of 2012, and the family was all together for Easter, and we were just bumming about finding quality food in the grocery store. Like even in our local health food store, we could find organic produce and grass-fed beef, but we could not find pasture-raised chicken, and that was like the thing that we really wanted to find. And so we were joking around about, because my in-laws had this place out in Temecula, it had a little bigger backyard than normal. And we we're like, oh, wouldn't it be funny to get some chickens and like, raise them in the backyard and do this whole thing? Uh, my brother-in-law, Rob, he disappears from the room. He comes back like 10 minutes later. We'd moved on. We're talking about something else. And he's like, hey, I got the chickens. And we we're like, what? And he's like, yeah, I ordered those 50 chickens that we were just all talking about. We we're like, bro, no. We weren't talking about that. Like, we were just joking around. And he's like, oh, they're going to be here in two weeks. So that's pretty much how we got started in the chicken business. I have interviewed a lot of first-time farmers, all different kinds, from microgreens to cattle, but never anyone who started a farm and built a really successful business on the back of a family joke. Here's where it went from there. We didn't read any books. We didn't know what we were doing. We'd never raised any animals before. We were just kind of like got 50 chicks, geeked out on Joel Salatin and his methods of moving animals around in the field. Joel Salatin is a very influential farmer and the owner of Polyface Farm in Swope, Virginia, who shares his regenerative practices like rotational grazing and mobile coops for pasture-raised chickens far and wide. 
He's written umpteen books and has given many a homesteader and farmer a leg up to get going and to make improvements. Joel joined me on Talk Farm to Me in 2020. I will give you a link to that episode in the show notes. It's totally worth a listen. And the first time we harvested them, it was like a chicken and a tree with a traffic cone and and an iPad with YouTube with Joel Salatin showing how to process a chicken. Are you wondering about the tree with the traffic cone? Well, basically, you stuff the chicken in the traffic cone until the head pokes out of the end, and then you slit its throat. The cone acts as a restraining device and also facilitates the draining of blood from the chicken, just so you know. That's how the whole business was really grown. So that 50 became 100, which became 200, 500, 1,000, and about a year and a half later, this little tiny hobby was like showing some signs of life. And I was really bored working as an accountant in Newport Beach. About three months later, we were moving back to Temecula. Talk to me a little bit about the problem as you see it. I've seen you refer to it as factory farming. What's going on in the chicken business that you're in now that's not going well and that kind of inspired you to have the business you have? I have nothing but respect for anybody who grows any kind of food, whether that's factory farm or pasture raised regenerative or something in between. To me, that's not really what it's about. It's just, it's about growing good, healthy, clean food for people. So this is not a knock against anybody growing, but the way 99.999% of chickens are grown in the U.S. commercially is a 600 foot long grow house, 40 foot wide, 24,000 birds inside of there. Do you need a second to let those numbers sink in? Nearly 100% of the chicken grown in the United States, 99.999% are raised in a 600 by 40 foot grow house. That's 40 feet shorter and 120 feet more narrow than a football field. And it's filled with 24,000 birds. There's varying degrees of what they would call like outdoor access or different types of supplemental feed, whether it be organic or non-GMO or just regular or no antibiotics. But really, all the chicken operations look the same. And the problem with the whole outdoor access thing is like chickens are prey animals, right? So you could say that they have access, which is like the dirtiest word in poultry, but you could say they have access to 20 acres, 108 square feet. But the reality is like chickens are not a cow. So they are not going to just run out into a big open field and run around, especially broiler chickens. So immediately you go, okay, this whole idea of like free range and organic, really those birds are spending the vast majority, probably a hundred percent, 99 to a hundred percent of their lives indoors. And what's so bad about that? It's a clean, dry environment for them to live in. Yes and no. And again, this isn't a knock against people doing it that way or that style, but those birds are living, eating, sleeping, and pooping all in the same place, right? So you can use your imagination on what it looks like in there and what it smells like in there. And I just got really excited about Joel Salatin's method because he flips the whole script. And and he, I think he respects creation in a way that's like, Animals were never meant to stay in one place all the time. If you look at bison or cattle or poultry in the wild, they're going to eat the ground 
they're going to eat pasture. They're going to mow it down. They're going to poop on that ground. That poop's like the best fertilizer in the world, but then they're going to move to a new spot. And that happens all the time. And that's why in nature, animals are such an asset to the environment. And on farms, they're such a liability because it's the idea of movement. Did you listen to the last episode with rancher Glenn Elzinga? If you missed it, you're going to want to go back. Animals moving, following patterns of nature, naturally restoring the land with what nature gave them. Poop. you got to check it out. I'll drop a link in the show notes. So we just got really excited about this idea. Like my whole life, all I heard was to be an environmentalist, which I consider myself like a lover of the environment. I want to steward the environment really well. And all I heard was in order to be an environmentalist, you need to be a vegan. You can't be somebody who loves nature and eats meat. Like those two don't go together. I don't know if you know this or not, but in my farm facing corner of Instagram, Vegans come at farmers pretty hard with visceral and personal criticisms of farming, especially meat farming. Those farmers are hitting back, and the skirmishes don't seem to be really going anywhere. But for Paul, he found some information that worked. And when I started reading Salatin, it just made so much sense to me that's like, no, it's not the cow, it's the how. It's the way that these animals are being raised that determines if they're good for the environment or bad for the environment. So we got really excited about moving animals in floorless mobile coops. And it felt like a real solution to this problem of like animals living in one place all the time. They're not foraging. They're not eating bugs and worms and grasses and seeds and flowers and weeds and legumes and like this beautiful mixed diet that they can get from pasture. Like they're just eating monocrop corn and soy 24 seven. I think that there's tons of room for improvement on that. And this idea of pasture raised is what we started with. So we started with these little 80 to 100 bird coops that we would, they're about 10 foot by 12 foot. The birds are protected from predators and all that stuff. And you go up every day, you grab the handle and you pull it to a new spot. And it's really cool. Like you see how they've eaten the grass down and they've pooped all over the ground and they're moving all the time. So it smells really good. It looks really good. The birds are really healthy and active and happy, but it's such a labor intensive way to do it. Cause you think about, the industry, 24,000 birds in a stationary house, the feed's delivered on an auger, it's all powered. The farmer just basically needs to walk through and pull out the dead ones every day. Other than that, you're checking feeders, you're checking waters, like super efficient from a labor perspective. And in our system, we're spending like 15 minutes a day minimum on every 80 birds. So our comparison of labor structures like night and day compared to the industry. So then our mission really became, we started building, we got really excited about the nutrient density and the regenerative, and we would see all these grasses come back to life and all these really cool things happen. But the product we had to sell it for so expensive to even have a prayer to be like financially solvent. And so it became this idea of this regenerative thing is really cool. This pasture raised thing is really cool, but I didn't grow up with money. None of my family grew up with money. Like we wouldn't be able to afford our own products growing up. This is another challenge I hear. Small farmers grow good, healthy food and have to charge a premium for it to cover costs, and not everyone can afford it. Some efforts at marketing good meat like this try to shift the conversation toward habits. Eat really good meat, just less of it. It's still an issue to tackle. So how do we make economies of scale and like smart business and efficient business and ramp this thing up to where we can start to bring the price down to where it's like 
not the cheapest, but it's more accessible and affordable for regular people. I think that's one of the questions that I get a lot. I've talked to a lot of yeah. about this issue. Like, how do you raise really good food and make sure that what you're doing is, how is it scalable? How is it accessible? How is it not elite meat? <laughs> I know. It was something that really bothered me. And I would just, I'd think back to kind of like my parents growing up in not just for the budget, right? So it's super expensive. Like in Co- at Costco, you can go buy a $5 already fully cooked whole chicken. If you want to go buy a pasture raised chicken, you know, you're going to go to the store. It's going to be, it's going to be $35 and you have to wake up early on a Saturday to go get it from a farmer's market. If you're lucky, they're not sold out yet. So it's not just the price. It's like the convenience factor is not there either. So I always felt like you have to have, you have three legs of a stool that can like make you successful. You need at least two. You need price, quality, or convenience. And we had the quality, but we had no convenience and we had, you know, horrible price. So it was like, all right, we got to figure this out. So we started offering home delivery, putting people on subscription, like really focusing on convenience. And I felt like we did a pretty good job at that, but there's still a huge subset of the population that doesn't want to order meat online. Call it 85% of people don't want to order meat online. They want to go to the grocery store and they want to get a few pieces fresh and they want to take them home and, and cook them that day or tomorrow. So it's like, we really hadn't solved the convenience thing. And the price thing, we started with the coop design because we're like, as long as we're pulling this thing by hand, we're never going to get it to where it's efficient from a labor perspective. And so we moved it from a 100 bird system to a 600 bird system that we pull by a tractor. And we built, I don't know, 70 or 80 of those 600 bird systems. We leased like 200 acres out in rural San Diego County. We had a USDA processor, like things were moving in the right direction. But even with that, we're still spending 15 to 30 minutes a day with every coop of 600 birds. At first, that didn't sound like a lot of time. 15 minutes for 600 birds. Hmm, But it adds up. To move 80 of these bird systems would take 20 hours a day. And so we're so far off of the industrial labor model. And so we started dreaming about what would the dream system look like? And let's acknowledge that not everything about industrial farming is good and not everything about it is bad. So they've got some really smart people that have figured out automated feed delivery, automated water, thermostatic controls for the house. You don't have birds freezing in the winter and boiling in the summer. And so we said, let's try to make all the best stuff from that 600 foot industrial house, but put it on wheels and power it by solar and make it so it actually autonomously drives itself and feeds the birds automatically. And it was like, all right, that's the dream. And I was thinking about it for years and I'm not an engineer and I'm not really that smart. So I couldn't figure out how to literally build this thing. You're not buying that, are you? Well, Paul was smart enough to hire someone with engineering experience to be their director of farming. And he had a passion for raising a million birds a week on pasture. And that happened to be the exact same number that was like my dream. Someday, could we raise a million chickens a week on pasture? A million a week? That's a lot of birds. Or is it? Hold that number in your head. And uh, we shared that kind of common goal. And he started developing what we call the automated range coop. So this is a 6,000 bird system. It's on 20 dry electric drive motors. It's fully solar powered, fully autonomous. It 
takes all the best from the industrial model and just makes it mobile. So we really like it. We built our first prototype in 2018. And then we partnered with one of the largest, we partnered with the largest organic chicken farm in the country to really help us with the hatcheries and the feed mills and the slaughter side of it and logistics and distribution. Do you know who that partner is? Purdue, Purdue Chicken. Just hold on to that for a minute also. I want Paul to tell you. And now we have something really special. So we have 20 of these 6,000 bird coops in operation, soon to be a lot more. And we're doing a lot of farming out in Georgia now where things are a lot more efficient too. Yes, Georgia, from California. (laughs) Hold on to that one too. It's all going to come together and into better focus in a minute. So I think that we're really on to something and we're able to sell chicken at a price that I think falls between kind of conventional and organic. And you're getting a true daily move pasture-raised product. We've really focused on like the packaging and we're into sprouts now and some other retailers that feel like a really good fit. So we're just like a seed that's just germinated. And I really think it has a potential to be something special in the market, shake things up quite a bit. But we're also like in the third inning of a baseball game. We have a long ways to go on our dream. Did you say Georgia? Yeah, we're mostly farming in Georgia now. So you're in California and Georgia. Yeah, we have one farm in San Diego County and three or four going in Georgia. And the goal is really to triple down on Georgia just because of cost. Our goal within PastureBird is to make pasture-raised, nutrient-dense chicken accessible and affordable. And that's very hard to do in California. The land prices are 10x what they are in Georgia. And it rains 10 times more in Georgia. So what we can do there is pretty profound compared to what we can do here. But this is also our home. It's where I raised my family and it's where the business is born. So it'll always have like a special place in our heart too. Let's talk about numbers. Did you say a million a week? That was That's your goal? We're very far from that right now, but that's the big We call it the big, hairy, audacious goal. That's where we want to be in 10 years. Here it comes. You ready? And the crazy thing about that is a million birds a week would still be a very small poultry program nationally. So there's 9 billion chickens harvested in the U.S. for meat every year. 9 billion. Did you know that? It's a huge market. So we would be 50 million out of 9 billion, not even 1% of the market. That's crazy. And so where are you now? What are your numbers now? We're in the like 20,000 birds a week range, which puts us at by far the largest truly pasture raised chicken producer in the country, probably in the world, but a very tiny, laughable, really chicken producer in the grand scheme of things, like on the industrial side. If you told people you had a program that was doing 20,000 birds a week, they would be like, What are you talking about? That's not a chicken program. So we're in this weird, awkward in-between phase. 20,000 a week to 1 million a week. That's the goal. That 800,000 number in the middle, that's the awkward phase. But we are partnered up with Purdue, which didn't seem like a likely fit early on. We, We hated Big Ag. We thought that they were the full enemy and the whole reason that we're in this mess. 
And the more we studied the space and we kind of fought the slaughter and the small scale processing and we fought all those fights, I think we realized that if we want to like leave lasting change, we, we want to see the needle actually move in time for our kids to reap some of the benefit. Big ag probably is more part of the solution than we wanted to give them credit for if they were willing to do it authentically. And so we were approached by Purdue back in 2018. They said, hey, we think pasture and regenerative are the next big movement and we want to do it for real. We don't want to do the greenwashing thing. And we kind of said, gross, big ag. And we prayed about it and thought about it a lot and talked about it. And it was kind of like, you know what? If they're real and they really want to do this, I think we'd be remiss to not try to help them. Paul was called a sellout for working with Purdue, with Big Ag, for trading his small farmer struggles for the dream of doing something bigger and better. But he's kept an open mind and he's learned a lot. Let's dive in. And it's been a really great partnership. We've been working with them for three years. If anything, our standards have only gone up. They really believe in what we're doing and they put a lot of dollars behind it and and they've shown a lot of good faith with that. So I think that this idea of like big ag being part of the problem, therefore they need to be part of the solution. I think that that's, I think we're going to see more of that over the next 10 years as we try to like actually fix the food system. Do you like that idea? Fixing the food system? I'm not sure I've done a good enough job outlining the problems with the food system yet, but I'm getting to it here on Talk Farm to Me and on my Instagram at XOXO Farm Girl too. It's deep and complicated and worth making big leaps like Paul did by working with Big Ag to do it. Or we can just say, you know what, screw anybody who's big. We're going to pick some arbitrary number and we're just going to say, no, we're not going to help anybody. I just don't think we get very far by doing that. So they're putting money behind your operation and they're seeing how this whole regenerative possibility is playing out. Are they changing anything that they're doing? I know you've learned things from them. What's happening on their side? I'm curious about the partnership. The hard thing about pasture is you're either doing it or you're not. So it's not like they can really take their stationary houses and prop them up on wheels and suddenly they're mobile coops or something. So no, they still have a really active and what I would call a healthy stationary program. But what I like about them is that they're honest about it and they don't try to pretend like some things are pasture raised when they're just free range or when they're organic. So I think that they're really honest with their labeling and they're honest with consumers. And that's all I ask. Like I've come all the way full circle where I go, you know what? Even gnarly factory farming where the birds are just locked indoors with no windows 24 seven. If you're just, if you're honest with consumers and you're telling them that's the way that you're doing it, fine. Let people decide. They can choose what they want to buy. And some people are on such a tight budget that like, that's what they need. And that's season of life. Not everybody can afford even large scale pasture raised. And that's totally fine. To me, the bad actors are the ones that go, okay, now we have this 600 foot barn. We have 24,000 birds in there. We're going to pop a little two foot door open and none of the birds are going to go outside, but we're going to sell it as if it's pasture raised. That's sketchy. We're going to call it regenerative, even though like it's not at all. Okay. That's where I draw the line now. Not, oh, there's only one right way to do things. Like I really don't think that. I think you can do a great job with free range, a great job with organic, a great job with pasture raised. And they're all different. They serve different parts of the market and let people decide what they want. Just be transparent about what you're doing. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think that there's a there's still a lot of questions or people coming into a consciousness about certain kinds of labeling where they're like, well, I don't know if I believe it. So I think that's a big that's a big issue. It's a, it actually does more harm than good when the greenwashing happens. It just makes the industry it sets the industry farther back more than anything. So that's what's frustrating to me. I think greenwashing is something you want to add to your own consciousness. Sometimes it's hard to see, but if you ask questions and stay curious, you'll see it. I'm going to be honest with you. It's super frustrating when you find it. It makes you lose faith. A quick story. I was out to dinner at a really nice restaurant with my husband. The ambiance was beautiful, and we had a little cocktail. The menu looked amazing, and I felt like having some beef. There were two delicious-looking choices, and two farms named on the menu. Uh, I don't usually do this, but I got curious, so I snuck out my phone and searched. The results left me deflated. The two farms were actually one farm, and that farm is owned by an agri-corporation hiding behind family farms that operate feedlots. The truth is that the majority of U.S. beef comes off of a feedlot, but a nice restaurant naming farms gives you a feeling that the meat is special. It was not. So, don't let the labels fool you, okay? Back to Paul, because he's revolutionizing other things too, and he's honest about himself. He loved pushing for the big, hairy, audacious goal he and his team set, but he's a pioneering mindset and wants to move on and have someone take the birds from where they are to that million-week goal on this model. So, to go from zero to 20,000 is like super fun for me. To go from 20,000 to 200,000, I'm like, eh, all right, somebody else should do that. But I'm really passionate about what we're doing. One thing that scale affords you the ability to do is integrate with cropland. So for the last 70 years in our country, we've systematically separated crops from animals. And it's this insane idea, right? Plants feed animals and animals feed plants. And that's basic biology. Everybody understands that inherently. To be honest, the animal science degree and plant science degree are the only people who probably don't understand that. But that's the way this planet has evolved and has been created to actually function is plants feed animals, animals feed plants. So by putting up these 6,000 bird coops, we can take down hundreds of acres. And so what I'm really excited about in Georgia is we're taking over peanut fields, cotton, wheat, and corn. And the way it's working is we'll take over a thousand acre farm. We'll put it in 200 acres of poultry. So put in a cover crop and we'll put birds on it for two to three years. And uh, we'll graze that cover crop really hard. We'll put all this beautiful organic matter down into the soil, really recharge the soil. And then after that two to three year period, they can transition to organic because we're no inputs at all. We move to the next 200 acres and then they plant their peanuts and their corn and their soybeans behind us. So to me, that plant and animal integration feels like the new frontier of food, but also totally the old frontier of food, which is what I love about all of these businesses. It's like, we're just taking basic wisdom that our grandparents, great grandparents for sure would have understood and reapplying it. So I think that plant animal integration is really fun. Do you see how one innovation leads to another? That bringing good practices that make sense back to farming can cause a ripple effect in problem solving? We have made a lot of advances in agriculture over the past hundred years, 
but some of those advances are actually not. And the idea of fixing them is up to pioneers like Paul, convincing the world that a better model is out there and it can be profitable and super productive. Hmm. Pioneers. I don't know. I don't know where you stand, but for me personally, the whole begging for government to fix our problems thing, I don't like that. So I would way rather put a really solid product that can build organic matter and sequester carbon and increase water holding capacity. Like I'd rather put a product on the shelf where people can vote with their fork and vote with their wallet more than hoping the next farm bill throws me $500,000 or something. I just, I feel like the market-based approach is more realistic to leave lasting change. I'm curious, just a couple other things about the chicken business. I love the idea that you're working with big ag because I think moved into a a black and white, this is good and this is bad kind of society. Eating meat is bad or being a vegan is bad or all of these things. And it's not, it doesn't really match up with my personality. I think certainly we can all learn from each other. And obviously there's a lot of infrastructure there. What do you think about your model and looking at whether you're talking about Purdue or these other big factory farm type you know, about the opportunity for it to really have a shift. Do we have enough land to do that with? Yeah, land has kind of widely been debunked as being a big problem. There's plenty of land to do regenerative ag nationally and feed everybody. That's really not a core problem. I can't speak for any other big ag companies. That's what's hard about it. I feel like they're all unique. What I love about Purdue is it's not a publicly traded company. It's privately owned by the family. And so they're able to make longer term decisions that I think a publicly traded company might struggle to make. They have to be pretty focused on short term profitability, where a family owned business can take a longer time horizon. What I used to think was that Big Ag was the devil and everybody that worked there worshiped Satan. And there's just no way that they could be good people. I, I, I couldn't be more wrong. There's some of the sweetest people best, well-intentioned, down-home, honest, hardworking, transparent, you name it. These are, they're just people. They're normal people that work at these companies. So I think I was totally foolish in that assumption that everything about big companies is evil or bad. Do big companies do some bad things? Yeah, totally. I think big companies are the problem and corporate greed is a huge part of the problem that's got us to where we are. So I can't speak for anybody other than Purdue. All I can say is I came in very much like cautiously optimistic that this was going to work. And now three years later, I always say I'm less cautious and more optimistic than I was last year and the year before that. And so it takes reps and this is my baby and it's really important to me. And I feel like as soon as something was happened that I was uncomfortable with or I didn't agree with, I'm not going to be here. I'm not under any kind of contract I could leave today and go do something else so i just feel like i have the biggest opportunity for impact here helping one of these big companies do things differently and to really showcase and pioneer this pasture-raised regenerative model and so i think it's rad if they're going to be honest and transparent about it and they're going to do it for real i'm all in do you see the future or the possibility of a different future here paul is super upfront about what he does and how it's going in fact He's happy to lift up the curtain here on this podcast and right on the farm for you to see what's happening. 
If you don't know chicken farming or chickens, he'll educate you, learning from the front lines and bringing us all along. We go live stream from inside of the coop regularly. So anybody that's like, you know, oh, how do you guys do things? What do you do? We have nothing to hide. And a lot of times we have to burst some preconceived notions about chickens out in a big open field, running around, you know, flapping their wings, doing all this stuff. It's, no, it's not that. We raise birds in floorless mobile coops on pasture and they're Cornish cross. And it's like, there's 6,000 birds in there. It's a lot of chickens. And I want people to really understand what we're actually doing. I don't want to try to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. So if they don't like what we're doing, I want them to be able to see it for themselves and make that decision. And so far, people have reacted really positively to seeing the real deal inside of our coops, not a marketing shot. Like we just bought an iPhone, put a data plan on it and hung it inside of the coop and put it on YouTube and for better or for worse. A lot of people said we shouldn't do that because what if a chicken dies? What if something happens? And it's, I don't know. I have a sense that people are just tired of all the marketing BS and they're ready to like, just be treated like adults. And really know where their food's coming from. And yeah, sure. Of course, there are some harsh realities in that. Yeah. I think people know that actually deep down. They sort of know that it's probably not every single bird gets to live out to their full life. Like birds just die of natural causes all the time. And that's just one of many examples. But I think people are starving for honesty and they're starving for a true story and a positive story within meat, which... So much of meat marketing over the last like 10 years has been, we don't do this. We don't do that. We don't do, we don't add this to the feed. We don't, it's all what don't you do? So little of, okay, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And like, why don't you stand behind that? Not just the fact that it's free of GMO or cage free or let's talk about what we are doing as well. You know? um, I have another partnership question for you. I find it interesting. Partnerships are complicated. Obviously, Purdue came to you guys and you're working through the partnership there. I'm curious about going to a big farm in Georgia, a thousand acres, and saying to the farmer there, we want to take over, we want to partner with you, we want to put birds on, on 200 of your acres for three years. And how does that work? Who does that? Yeah, so the cool thing about Purdue and Georgia is they have a hundred plus growers that are already there. Some of which, many of which have a land base that doesn't really work. It's too hilly, too marshy, too many trees, whatever. But a selection of them have a land base that actually works great. So we were able to go out and reach out to some of the existing growers. And again, same thing, foolish, me thinking I know everything. You go, oh, these conventional farmers, they're not going to want to do like pasture raise. They're going to think that's stupid or whatever. No, couldn't be farther from the truth. They really enjoyed our model. A lot of them were already thinking about a model similar to that. They just hadn't executed it yet or whatever. So the first guy that we work with, Kenny, amazing guy, third generation Purdue chicken farmer. So the way his thing works is he runs brother houses for Purdue. And then he runs a cow calf operation. And then he runs hay for the cows. And so he has about a 500 acre farm all in all. And he had a few hay fields that were 80 to 120 acres that were perfect for our mobile coops. So I said, okay, Kenny, let's work together on this. You take care of the chickens. We'll put coops up on your land 
and uh, we'll take care of the brooding. We'll deliver them to you and they're like 18 to 20 days old. You raise them out until they're ready for harvest. We'll come back and we'll pick them up and, and we'll kind of handle all the sales and marketing and distribution and all that. And he was all, all ears and we're going to pay you to do that, by the way. And what happened was his 400 acres of hay after running these birds over it and getting all of that natural organic fertilizer on the ground, he was able to completely stop the use of synthetic chemical fertilizer. Maybe I'm just a super farm nerd, but this gives me chills. Animals and plants the way nature intended it to be. Do you see how if we apply this model more widely that we could actually reduce our use of chemical fertilizers? What would be wrong with that? with that big, hairy, audacious possibility. So he's able to do things more organically, get rid of the fertilizer bill, and make a bunch of extra money because he's saving money on fertilizer and he's getting paid to take care of chickens. And it was such a cool thing because it's like, he had been wanting to figure out how to get his daughter to be able to come back and work the farm with him, but the money's just not there. And so now his daughter's able to come, join forces with him and be part of the farm. And it just, it's worked out really well and his whole thing is like this didn't take away from anything i was able to stack it right on top of my current farming operations and so he still grows birds for purdue on the conventional side he still has his cow calf he still has his hay operation but now he's added the pasture poultry thing that's fit like a glove and so that's just one example but it's one that i thought was pretty cool now when you're running all these chickens you you're starting with chicks right we start with chicks we actually have the hatcheries, so we start with eggs. Oh, okay. So you have your own hatcheries. We do. Yeah, within Purdue, we do. Interesting. So that's part of your partnership. Yeah, so we get hatchery brooding. So one of the biggest, hardest things about pasture poultry, if you ask anybody that does it throughout the country, it's the brooding phase. And so you take a step back. After 10 years of us building probably 40 different brooder styles, you take a step back and you go, you know what? What would the perfect brooder be? And it turns out, because you, you can't start the birds out on pasture. They need to be climate protected. They need to be warm, dry, all these things. They need to stay basically like they would be under a mother's wing. And so what's got the right ventilation? What's got the right litter and wood chips and all? What would be the perfect environment? And you back up and you go, what's a perfect brooder? A stationary chicken house. It's dialed for exactly what we're talking about. It's insulated. It has the litter on the ground. It has the perfect ventilation. It has the feed. It has all the perfect things. So we went to Purdue and he said, what if, instead of raising birds out to full size, what if we just were able to use a few of these houses, like for the first 18 days, then we pull them out and then we put them in our pasture houses. And they're like, oh, that's great. That's what we do best in the world is we brood little baby chicks. And we have the, the hatchery the brooding, the feed mill. So Purdue owns all their own feed mills. They also have one of the largest organic grain networks in the whole country. So we're able to take control of our feed supply as well. It's a fascinating position that you're in, especially with the partnership. I think that's really cool. Yeah, I love that, that people get to hear your perspective on that, because I do think that, like I said, that people are in these polarized camps about yeah i see the same they're good or you're bad i think it's a model that we need to see more big ag 
feel like they're welcome at the table of these regenerative conversations. And it's, hey, you guys have so many resources and so many assets. If you took 1% of your operation and funneled it and doing something authentic and legit, we will move the needle that way. I think it's such a it's such an important message because if we've got 90% of our farms are small farmers in the United States and still most of our food is coming from an industrial model, what's the rub as we move forward? Yeah. We've got we have climate issues and we've got all kinds of people looking for the healthiest option that they can have for their diets. Right. Those diets are becoming more and more specific. What's the solution? Well, even the whole Bill Gates thing, for me, I understand all of the issues with somebody like Bill Gates owning all this farmland, but man, wouldn't it be great if some entrepreneur that knew Bill or could get in touch with him, got him sold and stoked on regenerative, and all of a sudden he wanted to manage all that land regenerative? In case you missed this, Bill Gates is actually the largest owner of U.S. farmland, amassing some 270,000 acres. Farmer Will Harris and I discussed this in an episode from 2021, which I will link for you in the show notes. Will is pretty steamed about it. Paul wants Gates to come to the table. Are we going to fight or are we going to like actually try to make things better? I don't know. It feels like two different routes. Paul has a tremendous amount of respect for regenerative farming pioneer Joel Saladin, who we discussed earlier. He has had a powerful influence on Paul, his family, and his start in this business. Paul is just not sure what Salatin would think of Pasture Bird's model. Salatin has long supported the idea that we should have small farmers everywhere, one in every community. And I love that vision. But I also think we've tried that for 20 years, and it shouldn't be mutually exclusive. Let's have those million small farmers, but let's also take like the industrial complex and make that a lot better too. Like it doesn't have to be one or the other. That's an inspiration really to think about like all of the, when people say factory farming and it's all bad and it's all this, like how, what if it could all change just a little bit, a little bit each day where it becomes better. And then it's the farm in the backyard. Well, they just serve different roles. I think they're, there will always be the dedicated customers that do not want to support big ag and they want to go to a farmer's market or drive over to a farm and pick up their food. And that's so beautiful. But this idea that we're going to change the way everybody does their shopping or we're going to get them to spend four times more for chicken than they're used to right now. And I just don't think it's going to happen. You're going to move some people, but like to really move the needle, we need to hit it from both sides, from the bottom and from the top and meet people where they are. Even with that, you're still going to move 10% of people. You're not going to move most people. They're going to keep doing what they do. I don't know. I think it's just about having a realistic view of what's possible. And I really do want to see things different for my kids. Like, I think it's, I think in order for that to happen, we need big ag to move and we need small farms to move. We need to fire on all cylinders. Well, farmer Paul Grieve is firing on all cylinders. That's for sure and he has given us all something to think about by lifting the veil on Big Ag and showing us what possible looks like. I hope that any limited beliefs that you have had about the possibilities for Big Ag to do better have been stretched and that you are maybe even thinking about small farmers as the knights in shining armor that they can be as a part of this very complicated equation. 
Think about your questions for Paul, because he and I are talking about having him join us for Farm Talk on my Instagram at xoxofarmgirl at some point in the near future. Until then, I am your host, Farm Girl, yes, also Dana, and this is Talk Farm to Me. Coming soon, we will be talking with farmers in the grasslands of Indiana, the cool of the Atlantic Ocean, and the sun bowl of California. Between now and then, do me a favor, will you? Share this episode with a friend. I am pretty sure they are going to love it too.